1: This is what the New York Stock Exchange sounds like at 8 a.m. on a Friday morning. The traders' booths aren't open yet, but the floor is already buzzing. NYSE president Stacey Cunningham thrives on this atmosphere. When she came here as an intern in college back in the 90s, Cunningham would have heard traders yelling their bids to each other in the pit. With most of that happening on computers now, it's a lot quieter. But listen carefully, and you'll hear the custom alerts traders have set up. Beeps and buzzes to help them keep track of market moves, It's almost like interpreting whale sounds. And while it's not the same as it was decades ago, you can still feel the energy peak every morning at 9.30 sharp, when the bell signals the opening of the market. In May 2018, Stacey Cunningham became the first woman to lead the NYSE. That's a big deal. It's an institution that's almost as old as the United States itself. And it's fitting that her arrival marked that milestone because she's been busy transforming the exchange in other ways ever since. She's overseeing the Pillar Project, an overhaul of the software NYSE runs on. She's trying to change the way companies see themselves and get them to go public sooner, and she even sued the SEC. Cunningham lives and breathes the New York Stock Exchange, and she won't sit idly by to watch it lose its spot as the top exchange in the world. This wasn't the job she imagined for herself as a kid, but even back then, the signs were there.
2: My dad traded stocks when I when I uh was younger, although I didn't really understand what that meant, but that's what he did for a living. Yeah.
1: Is this one of those situations where you see a parent doing a job and you're like, "Oh, this is I'll just do this when I'm an adult."
2: No, I didn't I didn't I really didn't understand what he was doing. We didn't talk much about it, so it wasn't something that I was intentionally following in his footsteps. Although the fact that he was in that business did impact my own career because as I was talking to him about trying to get a summer internship, we had this conversation and, and, and I did end up going down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. But it, it wasn't something I consciously chose at that point in time.
1: When was that first visit to the, the floor of it?
2: Well, funny story. So I the first visit mm-hmm. was in 1994 on my first day of work as a summer intern. I was in college. I was a, a, a between my sophomore and junior year in college. (laughs) And I walked down to the the trading floor and it literally took me 15 minutes. You know, I got onto the floor and right away, I could feel the sense of community that, that really strikes you right away on the trading floor. You just feel that that group of people down there are there to manage a task. And when I look back throughout my time, on the floor originally and, and even up through this day. There are always these moments on the floor where you really feel the the community come together and, and that was something I was really passionate about.
1: What would something like that be? Like is it just coming around like might, a big market? Yeah change? it might be
2: through a market event. Yeah. It might be when the entire trading floor is watching O.J. Simpson's car chase on TV, it might be during an event like 9/11, when oh, the when okay. the floor was obviously dealing with that tragedy, as being very close to the World Trade Center. And then, wow. importantly, that first day the markets reopened, that sense of community was was really strong on the floor. It might be during an IPO. It might be during you know a, a large market market move. Any, any way or anytime we're recognizing and honoring something that the floor feels passionate about. And I think lens is a, is a great word when you think of the New York Stock Exchange, because it really does depend on whose lens you're looking through when you look at the exchange. It means so mm-hmm. many different things to so many different people. Mm-hmm. and. I've seen it through a number of different lenses and kind of lived through different places in my career, and my life, where, whether it be as a trader on the floor, mm-hmm. might see the exchange and what's happening there through that lens of of commerce and buying and selling securities and managing market movements, or the lens of the CEO of a company who's bringing their company public for the very first time. That floor means success and mm-hmm. opportunity to them, you know, it means so much, uh, so many different things. or. Uh, prime minister or president from another country that's coming to visit the U.S. And this represents capitalism. And so there are so many different different lenses you can look at, at the New York Stock Exchange through. And I think that's really unique about us as an organization.
1: Yeah. So that lens of a trader, how long did
2: you have that it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. <laughs> no, okay. no it, it's it's a. When I look at the floor, I see a number of different things at different times, and it sort of depends on the capacity that I'm walking onto the floor at the moment. If I'm if I'm escorting a CEO down or escorting a, a head of state, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than if we're there on a market rebalance of an index day, and the floor mm-hmm. is very busy, or or when there's global news out like the Brexit referendum, and you're coming in to to run that those trader juices. Still there, Yeah. (laughs) yeah.
1: And so, in your first act, basically at the NYSE, were you were a trader for eight years.
2: Yeah, I worked on the floor until uh, 2005. So, you know, I first, I first started as an intern in 94, full-time in 96, and, mm-hmm. and then I, I became uh, what is known as a specialist. So every company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange has a market maker mm-hmm. who's assigned with overseeing trading in their security each day. And that used to be known as a specialist. Today it's known as a designated market maker. So that was the job that I had, and I did that through, through 2005. I didn't work for the exchange itself. So Mm -hmm. the market makers and the traders on the floor are working for trading firms and not for the exchange. So that first tranche of my career, I I was working for a specialist firm. Mm -hmm.
1: You were just there in the heat of the action. though. Yes, Yes.
2: in the pits. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So when I was looking at your resume in the course of uh, your career, there was something that I thought was like really unexpected when you went to culinary school. What happened there? Did you have like a... Was it like a quarter-life crisis or something?
2: <laughs> no, you know, I, I I decided in 2005 that it was time for me to move on. You know, despite mm-hmm. the fact that I loved the trading floor and I still loved being there, it just felt like it was the right moment in time for me to move on. And and part of it has to do with how technology was 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 integrated at that time. You just I just weren't happy with it? it. It wasn't quite fast enough for mm-hmm. me. That the we had been increasing the speed of technology, but not changing how we were using it. So the Mm. integration was not quite at the level it is today. Mm -hmm. And if you put people alongside technology, but don't thoughtfully integrate them, it can be hard to keep up, right? They're almost in conflict instead of helping each other it's kind of
1: like what you're doing right now yes yeah so i mean
2: if you look at bringing together people with technology in a really thoughtful and useful interaction you can make them each stronger Mm -hmm. instead of fighting against each other and so that that was what was important to me and it seemed as if we there was some resistance Mm. to adopting technology in a more meaningful way from the trading floor community at the time so i just decided it was it was time for me to to go look for the next the next chapter was and it
1: painful for you to leave?
2: I think there are mixed emotions anytime you leave a job. Even when you ch- choose to leave and you decide to leave, you miss the people, you miss the parts of your job that that you know you love so much. But it's also exciting to, to think about what might be coming next. And I wasn't sure what might come next, but I knew that I liked to eat and I was going to like to eat for a long time. So I thought so I'd go, go to culinary yeah. school. <laughs> I was like, well, why not go take some time off, yeah. have a little bit of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed being in a kitchen. I learned very, Where'd very quickly. Go? So I went to the Institute of Culinary Education, but it was a uh, it, you know, very quick recognition that working in a kitchen is not all that different from working on a trading floor really yeah there are a lot of similarities the pace is the same the sense of community is the same you have to work together as a team you don't have time to think about whose fault something is if something goes wrong because mm-hmm. you're already in the next play you're already working on the next uh you know the, the next the next crisis so you have to keep moving and those are skills that i think are very very valuable in any career and I attribute a lot of how I think about communicating with our team and how we think about solving problems and working together as a team to time time on the floor and time in in the kitchen, even though it was a brief stint in the <laughs> well,
1: kitchen. How brief was it?
2: I was gone for a little bit more than a year. That culinary school process was less than nine months.
1: So did you just come to the realization that actually want to go back to, to an exchange?
2: You know, I went to... Culinary school, because it, seemed, it was something I knew I would enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a career I expected to build. So yeah. once school was over, I got back to looking for a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it was more um, like you
1: just needed a break from it?
2: Yeah, well, it was just fun. I, I just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next, and it gave me a little bit of time to take a step mm-hmm. back, collect my thoughts, and decide what the next steps were for me. And it did feel as if finance was the right place for me to be. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't worked for the exchange itself, but it was interesting to me to go get back into that business. Mm
1: -hmm. And so then you go to NASDAQ. Mm -hmm. And was NASDAQ's affiliation with the tech scene, was that something that drew you to it?
2: You know, I think it was also to relationships, you know, people that I had known, someone had suggested that that they were building out a team there that might be interesting for me based on my background. Uh, At the time, NASDAQ was combating the New York Stock Exchange on listings and trying to win a lot of those listings. And so kind of having that firsthand knowledge was was something that they were looking to, to, to build out. So I went and and joined that team and, and was there for close to seven years.
1: And so after having even a brief break, did that kind of give you a chance to reset what you wanted your goals to be?
2: It did. But when you say what I wanted my goals to be, I mean, I think there are different types of people that progress through their careers and whether or not i should be ashamed to admit it i, I didn't lay out personal goals throughout my career mm. i wasn't planning out the uh, the next steps on my own personal journey what i was always driven by was how can we be a stronger team how can we achieve more together you know I, I have a competitive streak and so it was how can we be better how can how can how can we improve this whole process and how can i help and i constantly found myself asking the question well how can i help mm-hmm. and when you're somebody who's Looking around and trying to help people usually give you work to do. And that's really what was the driver for my career. It it wasn't that I wanted to get to the next promotion or manage the next team. In fact, I turned down managing a lot of teams because it didn't seem to me like the way I could most help. And I, I was really focused on the strength of the organization.
1: You just wanted to be aligned with any team where you could offer something to kind of take the entire organization yeah, to what, another level? Yeah, what's the best
2: path for us? What do I think we should be doing? I had an opinion. I, you know, I always had an opinion. <laughs> yeah. But what do I think we should be doing that's going to make us most successful? And there were times where I had been offered opportunities to say, hey, you've been, you've been executing really well in this role and, and I want to reward you by giving you responsibility for this team. And I'm like, well, that team would be separate from another team then. And that's not the best thing for the organization. So I don't need to be rewarded
0: mm-hmm.
2: w- with something that I think is actually gonna hurt us as a business. Every decision I ever made in in leading a business or being part of a team was what I think the right thing is for the organization mm-hmm. or the community or society at large. And if we're driven by the, the bigger questions, I think we get to the right answers And then your career follows, you know, your, your Mm -hmm. personal path just follows.
1: Yeah. And so by the time you were leaving NASDAQ, you had built kind of, when we're talking about lenses, like you had built your sales lens. Yeah. I
2: I, I, I got to know the customer base in the trading community. I had a sense of, you know, what actually happens outside of point of sale. You know, how does the process work more broadly? You know, I I had uh, better visibility to the fuller picture of the equity markets than I had just on the trading floor. So you saw different different parts of the story. And at that time, it was clear that at the New York Stock Exchange, you know, they're really making an effort to integrate technology in a more meaningful way, to change the model, to modernize some aspects of, of the exchange. And I wanted to be part of that because it, it's an institution that I, you know, I grew up on that trading floor and I have a lot of passion, a lot of love for the business. So to be able to go there and, and really help redefine it yeah, was an opportunity I couldn't refuse. Yeah.
1: So when you saw that change that you had wanted in the first place, it was time to go back.
2: Yeah, it felt like a natural time—a natural time to to go and and help with that transformation.
1: Yeah, and then so after what was six more years there before being appointed president last year.
2: Yeah, roughly that. So I I, I joined there right at the end of two thousand twelve and and took over last summer. So in summer of twenty eighteen. So yeah, yeah, just almost six years, and it's been. In a number of different capacities, so I was there in a sales function, ran one of the smaller business units, took over as chief operating officer, and then stepped into the role of president last summer, which yeah. is a whole new lens.
1: Yeah, and so at that point, when you started kind of going up the ladder, there, did you see that okay, this is something that I would want to to lead?
2: No, <laughs> it still it still just kind of yeah, happened. It's still, yeah, it still it still it was you know when I ask myself about opportunities that are presented to me. And that's typically how it works for me. I mean, I think some people seek out opportunities, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes they seek you out. And sometimes I think they're the right thing for us to do as a company, and I say yes. And sometimes I, I'll, you know, I'll think through whether or not I think it's the best path forward. And in this case, you know, I had been such a part of our transformation mm-hmm. that when the opportunity to, to lead the organization was presented to me, I said yes.
1: Yeah. So what did you see as your mission?
2: You know, I, I think there are a few different things that are important to understand. Our markets have been core to the, the growth of this nation. I mean, mm. it really, you go back 227 years, and our financial markets are really what set us apart. Yeah. And capital formation and having a mechanism so that an entrepreneur, a dreamer, can come to the market, raise some money, scale their products and services, grow their business, create more jobs, and also, at the same time, provide a mechanism for any other person that wants to share in that success, to dream alongside them, that's what the public markets provide. And so you feel, on one hand, you're a steward of, of that process, right? It's really part of the American dream and, and you're, you, you're a protector uh, of, of that process. On the same side, it's also well, how do we innovate, how do we evolve, how do we change mm-hmm. our business, how do we achieve those goals with the tool sets that we have today? And so. You sort of dual track those those aspects and look for new ways to innovate and, and create more efficient markets that provide greater opportunity.
1: Did you ever, ever feel maybe the the weight of that as in I want to drive change at such an old and storied institution?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can't be an old and storied institution if you're standing still. You have mm. to change. You have to evolve. You know, and, or, else and you you, or else you won't exist. Or else you won't exist, right? Yeah. You'll, you'll no longer be, you'll be a s- storied institution in history
1: <laughs> Yeah. And, and just even having an institution that's it's founded 1792 and then just being the first woman to preside over that, you grew up in it in the 90s. Was this something that the fact that there wasn't as much female leadership at the New York Stock Exchange, was that something that you were cognizant about? Going through.
2: No, it wasn't something I noticed. And I knew that there were many more men than women in my workplace. But, you know, I, th- I think very often that can work in both ways. Right. So mm. I, I had a much higher profile as a woman in a male dominated environment than I would have if it if it was more balanced. And so there are pros and cons to having different levels of diversity and we should strive to have a balanced diverse perspective but if you find yourself in a situation where you're outnumbered take advantage of it you know I mean you're different Mm -hmm. if you're outnumbered you have more value to contribute because you have a different perspective than most people do so I I wasn't very conscious of the fact that that I was a a woman in a male dominated environment I never doubted that I had any right to be there and I just liked doing what I was doing and, and focused on on trying to help help us be more effective. I was very fortunate that I did not feel like my gender held me back. That's certainly not the experience for, for every person, but it was my experience. And I thought that it actually helped open some doors for me because I had a higher profile. And so, you know, yeah. anything you can do that really sets yourself apart. And I thought about issues differently. I, people often came and asked my opinion because my opinion was often different from what everybody else mm. thought. And, and I, I'm sure that it's not entirely unrelated to the fact that, that I am a different gender.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so when you're taking on this mission of driving change at the NYSE, um, you said that you have a competitive streak and you... I mean, when it's time to kind of compete with the other exchanges for a listing, how involved are you in that in terms of, are you meeting with founders being like, you got to come over to us?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we meet with founders earlier in their life cycle as a, as a private company, so we can help them through that phase, right? We can start helping them long before they become a public company. And so we we do meet with founders. And frankly, you know, one of the things that, I'm particularly passionate about is the fact that I I think those companies should be coming public much sooner in their life cycle Mm -hmm. than we're seeing today. Many of today's companies are waiting much longer before they access the public markets. And when they do that, it means that that rapid growth trend that they're having in the private market space is not shared by the everyday investor once because it's not yet yet public. And, you know, I think that that's a, a concerning trend. And one Mm -hmm. that ends up contributing to the bifurcation of wealth that we see if the most interesting and fastest and most dynamic opportunities are restricted to just a few.
1: Something I'm interested in as well is how, if you want to see this change in how companies are uh, behaving essentially and how they go public, what can you personally do when you're sitting down with a founder and having these conversations, whether it's early in their life cycle or years down the line what will you be telling them
2: yeah i mean there are a number of different things that i can do and we as the new york stock exchange can do some of it is directly with founders and Mm -hmm. having them actually recognize the social good that they're doing by becoming a public company Mm -hmm. and increasingly we're asking ceos to Think about all stakeholders and think about their social purpose. Mm. And more and it's more and more common, given the size of companies in, the, in this nation and globally, we're asking CEOs to, to think about the collective good. Mm-hmm. And that's one part of it, right? Becoming a public company is actually contributing to the collective good.
1: Is that easy to sell them on?
2: Uh, well I, I think it's it's a thought provoker because I don't I think many people haven't actually thought about it that way mm-hmm. you know they haven't thought it it's a recent phenomenon right that that companies are are much larger uh, before they go public. The mm-hmm. other thing that that I can do and we can do is advocate in d c and lobby for changes that make the public markets more attractive mm-hmm. I certainly can build out private market infrastructure. So it might sound self-serving for the head of the New York Stock Exchange to say, hey, companies should go public sooner. (laughs) I frankly would have a lot of growth opportunities in building out private market infrastructure. But I think the right answer for this country is for companies to be public and investors to have access to more opportunities than they have today.
1: Yeah. And so that kind of gets to a point where I see three big things that you're doing under your leadership, which I, I mean... You're completely reimagining the software that the NYSE runs on. You want to change the way that companies do business. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also want regulations to be different for all of this to kind of like reinvent the entire environment that we're doing business in. And I I think part of that is something that you had mentioned is that when you were coming up in the 90s, that... It was a completely different world from where we are today. I mean, the year after you started in 97, Amazon going public. I I mean, to look at its valuation, the amount of revenue it was coming in, it was only a few years old, to looking at Uber, a decade old, billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. I, I mean... How did you see that evolution happen and what do you make of it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that evolution and, and the fact that a company, the co- two companies you mentioned, one came out as a small company and had the majority of their growth in the public markets with, mm-hmm. with all to have the ability to share. And one came out as a bigger company. And so it, it's, it's harder to share that, that same level of success. I think there are a couple of different themes when I think about our markets mm-hmm. or the business that I lead. You go back to first principles why do we do what we're doing so when i look at how have companies evolved how have we evolved as a business how have we evolved as a nation how have we evolved as a globe you know and and think what are we doing that we've been doing the same way forever that perhaps we should reconsider that's how you come up with things like a direct listing because mm-hmm. you look at it and you say well companies used to be coming public primarily because they wanted to raise money now That's changed, and companies, yes, they want access to capital that the public markets provide, and they want the liquidity in the currency, but if they're not necessarily looking to raise money, then they don't necessarily need to have an IPO in the traditional format. So being able to sit back and say, what problems are we trying to solve, and are we using the right tools, or should we create new tools, Mm -hmm. is something that I think any leader should be doing throughout their business all the time, and we also should be doing it as stewards of the markets.
1: Is it frustrating if you have this view of the, the good that companies can be doing if they're public to have giant investors like SoftBank tossing around billions of dollars to companies where they don't feel the need to go public?
2: I, I think the access to capital in our private markets has contributed to some of the challenges we're seeing for both companies and investors more broadly. Because companies are much larger, it's changing the dynamic when they do come public. So there's a lot of conversation around governance, around the discipline that companies might have, around their uh, valuations, and whether or not their private market valuations are really reflective of what the market interest would be. And all of those issues are exacerbated because companies have stayed private longer. Mm-hmm. So I actually think, if companies just came out to the market sooner, we actually solve a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve in other places. So yes, I think I think the, the access to private capital mm-hmm. is, is certainly one of the factors that's changing that dynamic.
1: Yeah, so I mean, even when everyone's discussing WeWork this summer and into now, you're kind of saying that one of the things that companies can be doing is going public sooner to avoid kind of a uh, an accumulation of Yeah, the public markets
2: problems. deliver far more transparency and discipline than the private markets do. So when a public company comes out, they 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 recognize what it means, what's being asked of the leadership team and 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 you see a lot of evolution and change. And when I talk to CEOs over the past year that have recently taken their public companies public, I've often heard that they were most pleasantly surprised by the discipline it introduced in their organizations mm-hmm. because you have to be prepared for that. So, you know, when you're seeing companies that are that are much larger later, I think we're starting to feel a little bit of that, that lack of discipline.
1: Mm-hmm. And the other thing when I was saying just kind of completely overhauling um, the technology that the NYSE runs on, could you explain to me what pillar is without getting into jargon? Because yeah. I, I even... I was trying to read through it. I was like, oh, this is kind of complex. Can you know,
2: break our, it down? Our, yeah. our, in the simplest terms, it's the technology that we use to run our markets. And it is our matching engines that bring together all the buyers and sellers layered in with the interactions that the designated market maker and, and human beings have uh, over our process. And when you look at that technology and you're changing the core infrastructure that underpins the exchange. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge to do that when you're running the exchange every day. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like changing the wheels on a race car while it's going around the track. So yep. so you know, it needs to be perfect and and what what we've introduced with our new technology system is it is a centralized ledger-based technology that allows us to scale the business so that it's ready for any market-based conditions.
1: So does that mean that When we're looking at uh, buyers and sellers, that the transactions that all of this is just going to be more efficient.
2: Yeah, it it is. It's it's more efficient, and it it ensures that our customers are getting the same experience all the time. So that's that's uh you know as markets get busy and exchanges uh, are processing more and more messages. You know we process over eighty billion messages in a single day. Oh wow that's a lot right <laughs> so if lot, you think yeah. about the number the last stat i saw on the number of uh, google searches in a day was was something in the you know less less than 3 to 5 so th- there's a lot of traffic that's that's running through through our systems and the busier the systems get that increases exponentially so if there's news out in the market or there's and you know kind of any kind of market volatility, you see that messaging pick up uh, t- pretty dramatically. And we need to be able to the, to operate the markets under all conditions at any time. And you don't know when there's going to be news out in the market, so your markets need to be, you know, your, your technology needs to be ready for that. And it needs to be able to read those messages in, process them, send an execution back to a customer, so that when you pick up your phone and you decide you want to go on to your your. App and buy or sell yeah. a stock. Now it you're will be, be for an, free. <laughs> yes, and now it'll be for free. Yeah, <laughs> and you'll get an execution back in less than a second. That had a long roundabout way to go mm-hmm. uh, in order to get that back to you. But to you, it's seamless and it's instantaneous. So
1: it it, it kind of makes me think of when you were first at the exchange that you wanted this to be something where it could be a leader in tech and that mm-hmm. its ambition matched its technology. So is that now that you're finally yeah. in the driver's seat, you're. This is what you want the exchange to stand for.
2: Absolutely. If you look at the integration between technology and people now, so the, the the people that are on the trading floor are leveraging algorithms to put their interest into the market. So the human being is putting their attention where it's valuable as a human, and not where it's just busy work. So when I was on the floor and you had to manually match a lot of trades, it's much more important to hey let let's leverage. The best of the human judgment and human experience uh, where it's needed most, and let the automate the parts of the process that can be automated and, mm-hmm. and so we finally you know we've done that, and they're trading algorithmically and then they're they're adjusting those algorithms based on what they know if, uh, and see in the market
1: yeah and so with your ambitions for trying to change the way that companies are going public, the way that the New York stock exchange goes on into the future. Another thing that you've been trying to do is, well, I mean, you sued your regulator and you announced in a in an editorial that we're suing the SEC to save the stock market. So what went behind that decision? What are you trying to basically affect?
2: Anytime we make policy decisions, there are consequences and sometimes they're intended, sometimes they're unintended. And it was important that we took a position on behalf of the corporate issuers that list with the New York Stock Exchange uh, and and their investors on what we thought were going to be consequences from some of the policy decisions being made. So it, it's, you know, we certainly have a, a, a great relationship with the SEC. The SEC has done fantastic things on the capital formation side. One of the things we talked about earlier were how do we mm-hmm. get companies to come public? And that is, that is a, a really important initiative of, of Chairman Clayton, and he's, he's actually made a lot of rule changes and, and made concrete changes that are actually really helpful to that process, and that's great. In this one particular area, we are concerned about the impact that a fee pilot, that the SEC was looking to adopt, would be more of an experiment mm-hmm. that would put our public markets at, at risk. Okay. And so we took a stand. We, t- we tried a number of measures. I mean, nobody wants to sue the regulator. Yeah. It's, or at least <laughs> I certainly <laughs> wasn't looking forward yeah. to it. But we did think it was an important issue and it wasn't something we could sit back. So we decided to, to take that step.
1: Are there any updates on that?
2: Uh, it's, it's going through the channels. There'll be, there'll be uh, oral briefs in the coming weeks.
1: Yeah. And something that we talked about early on was kind of this accumulation of the the lenses and how that allows you to really tackle your job in different ways. Looking at your own career, have you changed the way that you define success personally?
2: Interesting. Uh, I don't know that I've changed the way I define success. I, I feel like I'm personally successful if I've been able to contribute a lot of value and can a lot of that is is through teamwork. So the the moments when I look back in 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 building a team that's typically what I'm most proud of, right? Is is <laughs> is picking the right people because as a leader, you don't have to have all the skills that are required to get a job done, but you have to have a team that has all the skills that are required to get a job done. Yeah. And so, you know, I think success is how do you find the the people that will make each other better versions of themselves and help each other to drive overall organi- organizational success. And so that's certainly how I come into work every day.
1: So it's connecting your wins to, to everyone else's?
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to be part of the same team. And so we, we think about our entire company as having one goal. Right. And it's one shared goal. And, and it doesn't matter what department or division you work in. We're all part of the same team. And so that's, you know, it's really inspiring to work together and help problem solve and help communicate and, and figure that out. So that, that that's the approach that, that we take is if we collectively work together, we can accomplish a lot more.
1: Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This is Success from Business Insider. This episode was produced by Julia Press. Sarah Wyman is our showrunner. I'm Rich Filoni. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know which guests you've enjoyed and who you want to hear from next. You can follow me on Twitter, at Rich Filoni, to find lots more interviews like this one. Before we go, I had to ask Stacey Cunningham a question I couldn't stop thinking about. Does she endorse my preferred nickname for the exchange, Nicey?
2: No, is you it, don't. Although there does are it make some.
1: Make you cringe. Th- do, do you hate to hear
2: it? No, I, I you know, nobody ever said it when I worked on the trading floor. I didn't hear that until I left the building.
1: Okay. And it's then, like a media thing or
2: something? Yeah. I, I think it started off as a media thing. You do hear it through you know, uh, there are people in our on our team that do say it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's nicey and sometimes it's nicey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yep. we don't use it. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh. <laughs> it's like the finance finance
2: yeah, type of thing. It is Oh no, which
1: one which team are you on on that? Uh, uh, finance. Okay. Here we go. It's settled. Okay. Yes. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio.